Good morning, beloved saints in the Lord, children of God. I'm Bill Smith, and we're going to continue our series. And today, we're going to be taking a look at Proverbs 16, verses 1 through 4. Proverbs 16, verses 1 through 4. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord what you do, and he will establish your plans. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked, for a day of disaster. So I'm Bill Smith. I'm one of the members of the teaching team here. And today we're going to look at exactly how the Lord worked out Proverbs 16 by looking at how he managed the events around the Last Supper as portrayed in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you into your presence because you have made it possible for us to do so by the blood of your Son. We come to you in eager anticipation of what we can learn from your word today. For each one of us, they might be something different. And so we pray that our minds and our hearts will be open to receive your word. And I pray, Father, that you would look past the sins of the speaker, for they are many. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So just like the week before, preparations for his entry into Jerusalem were already made. Here the same thing has happened. The preparation has already been made. During the last week of his life, it might look like everything is falling apart. However, this week we are looking at was not a train wreck. It was all planned out. Everything was planned, planned before the beginning of time. 
in a sense, life is all about preparing, isn't it? We go to school to prepare for life. We prepare for meetings. We prepare for meals, for vacation, and so on. We prepare for everything that we are aware of and that's important to us. It is difficult, of course, to be prepared for what we don't know is going to happen. Sometimes it can look like our life is a train wreck, and we wonder where God is in all of this. But the best we can do is to study God's Word and to pray and to be in fellowship and serve others and know that God is on the throne in control of absolutely everything. And then we can consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. The disciples, they didn't know what was getting ready to happen. So during this meal, Jesus is going to help them get prepared by demonstrating he is already prepared and is preparing them. So in verse 12, we read the disciples wanted to know where the celebration would occur. And he tells them to go in the city. We remember that they were still in Bethany, a small town at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and it was just a short distance away from Jerusalem. And they were told they would be met by a man carrying a jar of water. They weren't actually looking for a man carrying water, but rather waiting to be found by a man carrying water. We read in Luke that Peter and John went to Jerusalem. This is going to be important in a few moments. So how would this man with the water know who to look for? Peter and John would have an easier task. There would be people all over Jerusalem carrying water because water was an integral part of the Passover celebration. However, none of those people would have been men. Because in that culture, that was considered woman's work. Remember, Jesus was at the well, and who did he meet there to come get water? It was a woman. So a man carrying water would be rather conspicuous. That's why the disciples didn't respond at his instructions like, Lord, there's going to be thousands of people carrying water. When he said a man will be carrying water, like, well, that should be somewhat more easy to find, but there'll still be a lot of people. So... The disciples knew to look for a man carrying water, and the man carrying water knew exactly who he was looking for because he knew who these two disciples were. He knew them personally. At least that's what I think. You're free to disagree with me. But if you want to disagree with me, you can step outside. (laughs) I'm not going out with you. I'm just saying you can step outside. So they were to follow this man with the water to a house where they were to say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat with the Passover with my disciples? So Jesus does not tell them to say, our teacher asks, where is the upper room? But rather they are to say, the teacher asks where. See, at this point, Jesus has become known as the teacher. I have a whole another couple pages to talk about that, but if you look through that study, I never really realized how Jesus was always being referred to as teacher, even by the Pharisees, called the teacher. And of course, they found things just as Jesus told them, and so they prepared. They must have returned to Bethany because we read later that they arrived. Jesus arrived with the twelve. That means Judas had also returned from his scheming, and so they reclined at the table. So here's a question for you. How many people were there at the Last Supper? 12 or 13? 13. Well, the upper room that they were in probably held over 100 people. So there would have been more than just Jesus and the 12 because a Passover meal was a family event, was it not? 
their families would have all been there. So most likely there were probably 120 people at this Passover meal. So let's talk about this upper room. We see an upper room referred to in Acts 1 after the crucifixion. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill they called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room they were staying. Those present were Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. So here's another question for you. Who owned this mystery house? That's an even harder one. There are at least two theories about the mysterious owner of this house with the large guest room. One is that the house was owned by Nicodemus. And that could make sense because Nicodemus was considered one of the four wealthiest people in Jerusalem. And during Passover, it was his responsibility to make sure there was water for everybody. The second theory is the house was owned by Mary, the mother of John Mark. So we read in Acts 12 about Peter escaping from prison. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Didn't we just read a few minutes ago a similar statement about them gathered in a large upper room? This is interesting to me. So I don't think it's unreasonable to conclude that this would be the same exact upper room they were in with Jesus. That's the last place they were with him. Now, you could argue from this passage in Mark, this couldn't be Mary, Mary's mother, Mark's mother, because Jesus said right here in Mark 14, 15, he will show you a large upper room. Remember, though, we are working with an English translation. The word here for he is Altos. I know it looks like autos, but it's altos, okay, which has the idea of wind being baffled or going backwards. Remember in school when we were being prepared to learn how to write, we learned about something called antecedents, and we learned that if we use too many nouns and followed by a pronoun, the reader would get confused because they wouldn't know which noun they're referring back to. At least that's what they told me because I was really good at doing this problem all the time. So the pronoun would refer back to. There it is again, back to, when going backwards, the original noun. So altos can be translated a number of ways. Whereas we would use pronouns like him or he or itself, them, she or her. In Greek, it would all be the same word, altos. So notice the translators assume that the owner would be a man. So when they translate the word altos, basically they're just referring back to the owner of the house. So I think a better translation of Mark 14, 15 would be, say to the owner of the house, he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I meet the Passover with my disciples? The owner will show you a large room upstairs, not he, because the word is altos. How do we know it's a man or a woman? So John Mark here, his mother Mary, I think, owned this house. And that's my own personal big reveal. Well, there's one of them. There's a couple more here. So John Mark appears, obviously, to not have been one of the original disciples, but rather 
He was a disciple of Peter. So I hope some of you are thinking ahead of me here. So this might be why Jesus sent Peter and John instead of Judas, who had the money. The man Peter and John meet with has this picture was most likely John Mark, whom we know is called Mark, who is the writer of this gospel. So Mark draws attention away from himself and towards Jesus. This is what he did. And I think John picked up that clue from Mark. Because when we read John, John refers to himself a couple times in Scripture, and he always refers to himself the same way. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So I think John got that from Mark. You know, I've seen this same fruit in this congregation, a sense of humility and modesty, even in the face of all the gifts and talents that we, you all have here. I, it always impresses me. So the word used for upper room here, or guest room, is the exact same word used in Luke 2.7, explaining why Jesus had to be laid in a manger. The word is katalama, which means guest room. So when he was born, there was no guest room for his family. So he was born in what we might call a family room, or a living room, which they shared with the animals in sort of a split-level fashion, that bringing the animals in at night kept them safe, and of course the animals gave off heat, which kept the family warm. So there was no room for Jesus and his family when he came to this earth. But as he prepared to leave this earth, there was room for him, and he prepared it himself. So while this passage can seem miraculous, I think it's more likely Jesus had already prepared this place for the Passover. In John 14, we hear about another preparation Jesus is making for us. He says, My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? So let's get back to all this secrecy around where the the, uh, Passover is going to occur. Jesus sending his disciples without telling them where to go specifically, but rather they would be met by a man carrying a pitcher of water. If it was Mark carrying the water, then he would have been looking for Peter. And of course, Peter would have recognized John Mark and seeing he had the water pitcher would have put two and two together. This is where things are going to come together. So why didn't Jesus just tell Peter to look for his own disciple, John Mark? Why all of this secrecy? Well, I already talked to you about Proverbs, but we also can look at Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. He has made everything beautiful in its time. God created time, and therefore he is the master of time. In fact, we just sang about that. He causes all things to work to the good of those who love him. He has plans for us, and those plans are for a hope and a future. So God had already appointed the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, and nothing would be able to interfere with his appointed time. Jesus was Judas, I'm sorry, was already about the business of looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. He had already met with a Sanhedrin. The opportunity he needed had to be away in secret, away from the crowd, so there wouldn't be a revolt. The celebration of the Passover meal would be one such opportunity when everyone was in their home or with their families. Judas knew this, 
and so did Jesus. So all this secrecy around where Jesus and his disciples would celebrate the Passover was really about keeping Judas in the dark for now. So most likely when Judas returned from the meeting of the chief priest, he would have asked the disciples where they would be celebrating the Passover, right? And what would they have said? We don't know. Peter and John left, but we have no idea where they're going. So Jesus had revealed the loca- had he revealed the location of the uh, Passover meal, it would have been a natural thing then for Judas to dismiss himself yet again with a perfectly plausible excuse to run some type of errand because he had the money. But Judas was restrained for now. You know, sometimes when we're about living our lives and we're trying to achieve some goal, God restrains us from moving forward, doesn't he? And it might seem like to us we're not being supported by God when in fact in God's reality we are being supported. I'm not talking about punishment. I'm talking about restrictions placed upon us for our own good. Everything is done in God's timing, not ours. So Judas has to wait. Judas has to sit through the Passover meal as it would look quite odd for him to excuse himself just as the ceremony began or even in the middle of the ceremony. So here's the amazing thing about the love of God. Even though Jesus knew Judas would betray him, he celebrated the Passover with him because he still loved Judas. I know for some of us here, there might be people in our own life with whom we would have a hard time having a meal with them because they've hurt us or we just can't forgive them. But Jesus sets us an example, doesn't he? We are forgiven, so we can forgive. God still loves us even when he knows our very thoughts, the good ones, the bad ones, and even the ugly ones. God still loves you and wants to be with you. So now they're reclining at the table, enjoying the meal, having a good time, And Jesus ruins the moment and says, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. You know, sometimes Jesus will allow our lives to get ruined so that he can get our attention and prepare us for something that's coming along that's important. And so they were saddened, and one by one they began to ask, Surely you don't mean me. Now when he said, One of you is going to betray me, Knowing what we know about Judas, why didn't the 11 just look at Judas and say, Judas, what have you done? But they don't look at him. Why not? Because they trusted Judas. In fact, they trusted him with all of their money. You know, sometimes people can really dupe us, can't they? So we ask for discernment from the Lord to be on guard and to discern what's really going on here. And Judas had done it really well. And so... Jesus responds to their questions by saying, it is one of the twelve. So let's talk about that comment for a moment. Why did Jesus say it's one of the twelve? As we just talked about in all the movies show, just the thirteen, the twelve disciples and Jesus. So the statement, if that's all that was really there, then when he said it's one of the twelve, wouldn't they have said, "Uh, duh, that's all that's here, one of the twelve? They didn't say that. So his comment further supports the notion that there are probably a lot of people there, like 120, as we see in Acts. So when all the people in the room began asking if it was them, 
Jesus clarifies that it would be one of the 12, thereby eliminating everyone else in the room, which then you'd hear a collective from all those people, right? There are many times during our walk with the Lord where he will provide specific answers to our questions and our prayers. At other times, he will only narrow our choices or provide just enough information for us to make a choice, which forces us to walk by faith. Perhaps you're in a situation like that right now. You are praying for something specific, and the Lord is responding in generalities. So let's just be thankful for what we do get, even though he's not being real super specific. You know, I've never really thought much about this before, but I wonder, why did Jesus predict his betrayal? Was he just showing off? Earlier in Acts 1, to demonstrate there were likely 120 people celebrating in the Passover, I stopped right at the point where Peter stood up to speak. And here's what Peter says. Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. So we think that, that uh, he's referring to Psalm 69. So I think one reason Jesus predicted that Judas would betray him was to help prepare Peter to make this connection with David's prophecy. Jesus was preparing Peter for the big reveal that Judas was prophesied by David. Peter didn't get it at the time, but he does a few days later. Has this ever happened to you? where God has revealed something to you and it didn't make sense at the time. Maybe it was a strange thought or some kind of interesting interaction, and then you just dismissed it. And then a few minutes or hours or days later, it all started to make sense. Or sometimes 16 months later, that's why that happened. And then you realize God is working and was working in your life. And that's quite humbling and wonderful at the same time. So my prayer for you and for me is that in the future, it doesn't take days or hours or minutes, but that we're able to, in real time, notice God is working in my life right now. But I think there's another reason why Jesus makes this prophecy about his betrayal. I think it's yet another act of love towards Judas, who will betray and hurt him. Jesus was giving Judas a second chance. How many of you have ever gotten a second chance from the Lord? And a third and a fourth. He's still reaching out. Of course, Jesus could have just stopped Judas. He had that power. But to do so would have meant to violate free will. All Jesus can do in this situation is to reach out to Judas and ask him to repent, even though Jesus also knew that Judas had already made up his mind. And here is what Judas has made up his mind about. So let's go back to the shock the disciples had upon hearing the prophecy about his betrayal. I'm going to borrow now from Matthew's description of this event in the 26th chapter. The disciples, and remember this would be like a hundred or more people responding, surely not I, Lord, surely not I, Lord. It's not me, Lord, is it? Lord, is it me? It's not me, is it, Lord? And then Judas says, surely not I, Rabbi, he doesn't call him Lord. Recall from 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can confess Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. See, Judas isn't there yet. Just like uh, the, the guy in the workout thing that Julie just talked about. Judas doesn't see Jesus 
as the Lord of Lords or the King of Kings. He sees him as a political figure, not as a son of God. So Judas has different plans for Jesus. Maybe you've had the same experiences as I had. I have at many times, unfortunately, been very much like Judas with my own plans, my own way of doing things, developing my plans to achieve my goals. And God has reached out to me to attempt to woo me to his plan. Does anyone else besides me do this? Going to get a little encouragement? (laughs) We're all a little bit like Judas from time to time. You know, sometimes I hear his voice. I sense his wooing. And I change my attitude. And I'm blessed. Other times I hear his voice, but I stick to my plan. And I ask him then to bless my plan. (laughs) Then I pay for it somehow. Then, of course, when I ask, why me, Lord? I think he looks at me and kind of rolls his eyes or raises an eyebrow and says, you're kidding me, right? (laughs) I tried to warn you, but you had already decided, and I will not interfere with your will. You see, while God puts restrictions or limitations on us, he also, out of love, puts restrictions on himself with respect to our will. But then he says, but I still love you more than you'll ever know. You and I, Bill, are still okay. I will never leave you. I will never betray you. I'll never leave you alone. I hold you deep in my heart where you are safe. I am living in you and working in you my plan to renew your mind so that I can live deep within your heart. And as I, the Lord, achieve this goal then acting holy for you will become a supernatural thing. So I want you to repeat after me some phrases. Say, no matter how much I mess up, God still loves me. Even though I sometimes depend on myself, God still loves me. Even when I refuse to forgive others, God still loves me. Even when I choose to be passive-aggressive and not tell others what is bothering me. Heard a couple of you laughing right there. God still loves me. Even when I judge others. God still loves me. Even when I put the needs of myself over others. God still loves me. Even when I've said something I shouldn't have said, God still loves me. Even when I deny the Lord, God still loves me. Even when I lack faith, so when does Judas leave? Mark's description of the actual Passover leaves a lot to be desired. Remember, he really wasn't there. The other Gospels give more details. John fills us in here in chapter 13. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who we know as John, was reclining next to him, and Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. So leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Now, just a quick comment here. Not only is Jesus 
keeping Judas in the dark in order to ensure the Father's plan works out. Jesus is keeping his disciples in the dark. Why is he doing that? Well, you tell me. What if Jesus were to say, Judas is going to betray me into the hands of the Sanhedrin tonight? You tell me, what would have happened next? He would have not made it out of that building. They would have taken him out. It would be like 119 against 1, something like that. So he has to keep, he has to literally protect the person who's going to betray him. So, Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And Jesus tells him, What you are about to do, do quickly. Because John knows. And if he starts telling the others, you're not going to make it out of here. So you better go do it quickly. I always wondered why he said go do it quickly. And I think he's trying to save his life for a little bit. So I think this is quite an amazing moment. So I want to dig deeper here for another big reveal. Jesus had just changed the Passover symbolism by calling the blood his, uh, the, the wine his blood, and he called the bread his body. Jesus then dips his body into his blood and hands it to Judas. And Satan enters Judas. You see what's going on here? As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan enters him. And Jesus says, what you are about to do, do quickly. I think this moment is the pivotal moment in history. It's another big reveal. See, Jesus Jesus wasn't talking to Judas right here. Jesus was talking to Satan. And he gave Satan permission to use Judas, who had already made up his mind. Jesus released his restrictions on Satan by handing over his body. Jesus surrendered his body to Satan. So at this point, it's all over with. Everything from this point forward is a mere formality for Jesus. That's why Jesus behaves the way he does when they come to arrest him. And he stands before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate. It's all over. You know the old saying, it's not over till it's over? Well, from the perspective of Jesus, it was over when he hands the bread to Judas. Now it's time to let the clock run out. He's not going to try to run another play. It's over. Everything's going to God's plan. What was the last thing Jesus said on the cross? It is finished his work was finished at that moment he gave his body to be broken and destroyed by satan so it could be resurrected by his father so that he and his father could now abide in us as the holy spirit can anybody say praise god can you say thank you jesus jesus said he would not drink the fruit of the vine until that day when he drinks it anew matthew adds until that day when i drink it new with you. Although we call this event the Last Supper, those words are not in Scripture. I suggest we call it the next to the Last Supper because Jesus is saying there's another supper coming, and this supper will be the Last Supper for all eternity. And so it says they sang a hymn. 
Have you ever imagined Jesus singing? I never thought about that before. Jesus is singing a hymn. Here he is praising God in the face of his own death. What an example for us. Then they went out to the Mount of Olives, all of them except Judas, who had been dismissed. So by going to the Mount of Olives a short distance away, Jesus is making it easier for the Sanhedrin to arrest him away from the city at night. So when the Sanhedrin find out about this, they're probably thinking, what a fool Jesus is going outside the city in the dark. He's made a fatal mistake. And Jesus is thinking, I've got you right where I want you. I want Jesus to have me right where he wants me. How about you? So we're going to have to end the story here for now, so let us pray. Heavenly Father, you created time and space. You have prepared everything beforehand. You have already made plans for our lives, and so we have hope. We look forward to the many ways you will place restrictions on us, to the trials we will be allowed to experience, and to the blessings you will pour out on us. Give us the ability to notice when you are acting in our lives. Allow us the intimate experience of hearing your voice, watching you act, and sensing your presence. While we know you will not violate our will, I pray you would make us more willing and less willful. Overwhelm us with your love. Give us additional knowledge of who you are. Give us understanding about how you work. And bless us with wisdom to know what is good and right. We invite you to live deep within our heart by allowing you to renew our minds so that we can think like you and act as you do and love as you love. And we look forward to drinking the fruit of vine with you soon at the great banquet you have already prepared for us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says, Amen.